Amen. Please be seated. And please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Do have on the insert an additional passage that I'll begin with just to read. And I will refer to this in the sermon a bit. It is background information, necessary background information for the narrative we are reading in Acts 4. It's from John 17. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed just months, maybe just weeks before the episode we're reading in Acts chapter 4. It was before he went to the cross and he prays something very special and specific for his people. And we see it start to happen in Acts in the book of Acts, and then especially as it's denoted in chapter 4. We are studying the early days of the Christian church here in the book of Acts. And while not everything that we observe about the early church in Acts is meant to be a prescription for the rest of church for all time, um, there are underlying driving principles that we can derive from this narrative account um, that we could see as timeless. And we'll definitely gather that understanding as we look at this episode. And one such principle, said in different ways, the power and the impact of the Christian church is directly related to its unity, how harmonious the church is, the fellowship the church has together within itself. Uh, To put it another way, the church is most effective in its mission when it is unified. And there are threats to unity, as we know. Um, There are threats from without that come upon us by persecution. We've seen it in the book of Acts as the Sanhedrin threatens basically physical violence upon the apostles if they keep spreading the gospel. But there's also that internal threat to unity that we see in the story that's told in the passage before us today. Um, There could be false teaching that comes in. There's conflict that happens between members, dishonesty between members, between leaders and members, members or leaders and leaders. There's hypocrisy, there's selfishness. These are just to name a few of the internal struggles and strives that we have in the body of Christ. And the devil is quick to utilize both these means, from outside and from inside. And we see Peter actually say to one such person, why has the devil moved you in this way, essentially? So with that as background, let's now read God's Word, starting in John. I'll read John 17, verse 20 and 20, down to 22, which is on the insert. This will give us the background we need. Then we'll move into Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, and I'll read a little ways into the text that I have there printed for you. Hear now God's Word. Remember, these are the, word, the words that the Holy Spirit inspired, therefore it's the Word of God with full authority. John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, the passage before us today, Acts 4, starting at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And And great grace was upon them all. 
there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5, and I'll read verse 2 as well. You notice how it begins with the word but. That's an adversative, different from what we just read, a, a different kind of action. It's a cautionary story for sure. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Unity, always important, perhaps never more important than at the headwaters of the Christian church. And we see a threat to this unity already. Let's pray. Lord God, please give us clarity of understanding through the ministry of your Holy Spirit as we read and study your word this morning. Please challenge any part of our thinking or actions that may contribute towards disunity among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Please enhance and cultivate our sense of fellowship with other believers so that we might be effective witnesses for the gospel of our Savior Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. It was noted by John Calvin shortly after the Reformation period, during the Reformation, you might even say, as they were establishing a, 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 rev, a refreshed and reformed church in Geneva, um, he noticed the difficulties that crept into the body of Christ that he was a pastor over. And he saw that the devil's chief tool against the church's effectiveness was to make it a divided church, to bring in disunity. And he famously said, among Christians there ought to be so great a dislike of schism as that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power, that there ought to prevail among them such a reverence for the ministry of the word and the sacraments that wherever they perceive these things to be, there they must consider the church to exist. Satan launches a ferocious attack on the church after the Holy Spirit comes giving the people power to be witnesses for Christ, Satan comes right away to try to disrupt this and dismantle this. First, he attacks with threats of physical violence through the Sanhedrin. Next, he attacks through threatening to divide the Christians through the actions of Ananias and Sapphira. Physical attacks, moral attacks. The devil has not changed his tactics, so we do well to pay close attention to what happens. And what we see ultimately is that the church is at its most effective when it's unified. When we're together, when we're in fellowship together, that's where we're most unified. I don't mean we agree with absolutely everything. I don't mean that we won't step on toes, our, each other's toes. But we love each other and we stay unified in Christ, around Christ, and committed together as a community, as a family in that sense. This is where we become the most effective witnesses for Christ that we can be. This is God's design. Now, how do I know it's his design? And that's why we begin in John 17. Um, there are some occasions where we're not sure of God's will. God's will for the church, and as it relates to unity, there is no question what God's will is. God the Son prays for this very thing to happen in the life of those who are united to him. Unity is Christ's desire for his 
church because it promotes, ultimately, God's glory on the earth. It is glorious to see people who would normally be at odds and have every reason to be at odds to be brought to peace. And the prayer of John 17 accents this. Look at that text as it's on the insert. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only. Jesus at that time before his crucifixion is talking about his disciples first who would become the apostles. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now he's talking about those other people that we've already been introduced to in the book of Acts who the Spirit came upon, those who through the disciples' witness became Christians, and by extension, all of us who have become Christians since. So this is a prayer of Christ for us. Verse 21 of John 17. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prayed for the unity of Christians to be the spearhead of evangelism. The message of Christ crucified, dead, buried, and raised again for the forgiveness of sins, that's the gospel message, and it's the basis for unity. But a church divided or in conflict will not have credibility to preach that message. The message is that we were at war with God, now we're at peace with him through Christ. So, if we're at war with each other, how could we go preach a message of peace with God through Christ? So it follows that Jesus would pray, yes, they've received me, but may they love one another so that the world would know that I've been sent by you, Christ, which Christ says in his prayer. Every person here knows their share of relational problems. It's just natural to us as sinners. We all have some relationship that's not quite right, that we want to make right, try to make right, or we can't make right for some reason or another. Everyone on earth has the common experience of some brokenness with another person or people. Nations go to war, just like two kids will argue on the playground. It seems so natural. So, when we're born again we actually have ability to see some of those relationships healed, or at least we can approach them in that way, and that stands out. It's not natural. It's not natural for us to seek peace only when we receive peace that God gives through Christ. All of this may seem elementary, but it is the root for how we can be unified and have fellowship and have harmony, and we have to go over it again and again. The church has credibility about the gospel when it practices unity and peace with one another. Let's just say, uh, I'll call his name John. It's a friend of mine from seminary um, that I get to meet. Whenever I go to General Assembly, we try to get together. He's a a gifted evangelist, but he's the most disorganized person I've ever met. I mean, he almost never returns calls. He never emails back. Um, You'll text him, and two days later, after long after you've got the answer to your question, he texts. I mean, he's just that kind of guy. I love him, and I always try to track him down and have a meal with him, and I did with another friend of mine on the first day of General Assembly, and we were both kind of joking with our friend about how he struggles with that organization of communication. And so he launched into this big thing of how he's changed, and he brought out an app on his, uh, his phone that, that orders every second of his day practically. We're looking at each other like, wow, this is pretty impressive. We said goodbye. A couple days later, I saw another friend who was part of a group of us that hung out in those days, and I said, hey, did you see John? He goes, yeah, it's the funniest thing. You know, I scheduled him a month ago to have lunch, and he completely forgot we were meeting for lunch today. <laughs> and then my friend and I. So 
my friend John is not the guy that you should listen to when he gives you organization advice. You wouldn't listen to him. You'd know it and you'd be like, we love you, John, but we're not going to take your advice on calendars. Um, That's the church when it talks about the gospel of peace with God through Christ but cannot get along with each other. Uh, An opposite story. Just a couple days ago, I was looking through uh, some Facebook pictures and I saw a friend of mine who in college was 6'4", well over 300 pounds the whole time I knew him. He looked like skin and bones. Um, and he had been dieting and doing things to get his health in, in a good place. And, and I remember commenting. I said, what's happening to him? Is he all right? And uh, privately, I wrote to him. I said, his name is Brian. I said, Brian, what, is it, what, what are you doing? And he started to explain what he was doing to get himself into better physical condition. I thought, now, I listened to that. Uh, why? Because I can see whatever he's doing is working. And so it's more credibility when he shares that. So a church that practices unity, love, peace, harmony together, and don't worry, we'll get to how we're unified. I don't mean just overlook everything and we're just one big ball of love over here. I don't mean that. But what I'm saying is a church that really practices gospel unity uh, with one another and emulates the kinds of things we see in Acts, that church has much more credibility to speak to a watching world that desperately wants to see how relationships could be made right. Because it doesn't know how, no matter what it says. So we have that unfold in the passage before us in the life of the church. Now, let's move to the book of Acts. Verse 32 of chapter 4. That's where we left off last time. And we see a unity that's a beautiful harmony that displays the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. We see Christian unity with, with a dual foundation. It's doctrinal and communal. Now, don't get me wrong. The doctrinal is more important because they're rooted in the truth. But true doctrine will always manifest itself in a community that looks something like this. I don't mean one for one. That's not the purpose of the passage. But there's a sense about their oneness that shows itself in the practice of community. And it comes from a doctrinal basis first. Look at verse 32 of Acts 4. Now, the full number of those who believed, believed what? They believed on Christ. So there's a doctrinal basis for the unity. See that, please. Now, the full number of those who believed. It's not for the full number of those who happen to live in 66221 zip code or Johnson County or Kansas. That's not the basis for their unity. It's the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There's the community. There's a doctrinal basis in their commonality or community together, and they're gripped by Christ as the central unifying feature. They were freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the reason for this manifestation of unity. And it was doctrinal at its foundation and promoted in its community living and acting. How do we know it's doctrinal at its foundation? I just mentioned to you, it was those who believed. Believed in what? Believed on Christ. But verse 33 further explains how this is a doctrinal unity. It is based or founded on something that is true between them. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's shorthand for how Christ fulfills the revelation of Scripture In his life, death, burial, and finally his resurrection is that certification or that verification that Jesus is the Christ. And the apostles were preaching that 
with great power, they were giving their testimony, verse 33 says, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So this unity comes doctrinally from the truth of Christ, the person of Christ in his work, and it's lived out in the way that they share together, the way they view life together. Now, I didn't mention it earlier because um, I was going to save to cut on time. Let's put it that way. John 17. The verses before the ones that we read at the beginning, rooted in doctrine too. Jesus is praying, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Then he talks about the unity. So it starts with, you've got to sanctify the people in the truth, the truth of God's word, his revelation. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. He's about to go to the cross. He's praying for them to be sanctified by the truth. I do not ask for these only, then it picks up in the verse we just read. I do not ask only for these, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. So oneness is rooted in doctrinal truth. It's rooted in the person of Christ. You can't slight the truth and be unified. But you cannot practice community. Uh, You cannot just know the truth and then ignore our communal relation. But you can't just practice communal relation with no connect to the truth. It won't last. It'll be too loose. It'll fall apart. They go together. And we see it communally demonstrated in the balance of the passage. Look at verse 34. We already see its doctrinal foundation, but look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. I want to stress this so we don't misunderstand what the passage is saying. It's not promoting some kind of communism, Christian communism, that there's no private ownership and everybody's stuff is everybody else's. That's not at all. There's just going to be needy among us. Needy. Not equality, but there'll be needs that people have. And we don't have as many of those today. They're more hidden. We have to dig around in our community to figure out how to help with needs. And as needs come up, there should be no question, no hesitation. We do what we can communally to make up for needs that are not yet met. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. As a model of church leadership, where the church leadership spiritually as shepherds would know where those needs are, and people trust and give to God so that those leaders can rightly distribute to make sure needs are made up for. This is especially important in the early part of the church when there's such a disparity. There are certainly rich Christians, and there were those who had hardly anything, slaves, in fact. And so there's this cross-section in the social strata that first comes upon the church, which is a glorious thing, but there was a lot of need. And so they went after the need by just saying, hey, the church in its expansion, we want the message to go. Remember what they asked of God after Peter and John were arrested? Lord, please let your message keep going forward. And so this is part of that sentiment. We need to meet the needs of the church so the church can keep propagating the message of Christ. Verse 36 demonstrates really a beautiful picture of this from one of the members of the church. Thus Joseph, it says in verse 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. That's how most of us know him. Well, the word Barnabas, it means something in particular. Son of encouragement. Um, He was called by his nickname because he was such an encouragement to the church. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He wasn't even from Jerusalem where this takes place. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We don't know the fullness of how this went down, but this man is a great encouragement to the mission of the church. We know that throughout the New Testament. 
Um, He's vital in the missionary enterprises of the church. And here's an example of where he gives some of what he has so that the church could be upheld in this difficult early beginning. John Stott says, The fullness of the Holy Spirit is manifest in deed as well as word, service as well as witness, love for the family as well as testimony to the world. A very tightly knit group. And interestingly, verse 32 has a phrase that we read already in in chapter 2. They were having all things or everything in common. That is, they had a right view of possessions. Everything is God's. He gives us unevenly, by the way. That's God's design. But he gives us stuff to steward, to manage. We should never love it so much that we're not willing to use it at any moment for a tool for God's glory. Could be for the needs of others. It's great to enjoy it personally, but share that. It's just a view of stuff that recognizes who really owns it. And so we don't think of it in terms of ours, all mine, and I'm just going to hoard it for these short, piddly days we live to hold on to stuff that rots and moths and rust will ultimately destroy. No one claimed, no one claimed this was just their own. And according to any as had need, it's a beautiful picture of a communal unity. And this picture of Joseph is a setup for what comes next. Joseph called Barnabas. People clearly looked at him as someone who was very valuable to the church because of his humility, his generosity, his selflessness. He sold a field belonging to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. There's definitely a setup going here to explain or to better offset what happens in chapter 5. We have this unity of doctrine, unity of community. It's typified in the work that Barnabas does in the church. In fact, James Boyce says this. Luke is painting this ideal picture of church harmony as a background for the disharmony that came as a result of Ananias and Sapphira's deception. So it's a buildup. It's a setup. Don't be bothered by the chapter divisions. You know they weren't there. Here, the last scene in chapter 4 is is Barnabas giving. And the first scene starts... In chapter 5, with the adversative but, which is, means it's different than what Barnabas just did. Now we see in chapter 5, among other things, we see that unity has to be something zealously pursued. It won't be a natural thing. And also, it has to be something diligently guarded. When it comes up, when disunity crops up, we have to zealously guard against it. Look at verse 1 in chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Uh, But a man. That that is meant to offset Barnabas' motives, Barnabas' approach, what Barnabas did. His generosity and openness was celebrated, but something different here happened. So without question, um, we are led into the motives of Ananias and Sapphira in a way that we don't normally see when stories occur. We have to understand that, that Peter sees something here by the Holy Spirit and displays it uh, that we, we can understand as the story plays out. We start to pick apart uh, what is said here. Uh, the story of Ananias um, in the book of Acts is sort of like the story of Achan. Remember in the Old Testament when they fought and won against Jericho and God said to leave all the spoils as a, an offering to God, and instead Achan stole some or kept some for himself, and then God brought punishment. There's a bit of a, a, a parallel here for sure, um, but in this case, God intervenes quicker. 
Verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. I want you to remember that phrase because that's the key to the whole story and understanding what Ananias did. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the key to the crime, so to speak. Um, Kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Kept back comes from a Greek verb that really means to misappro- he misappropriated. So there was some commitment about the money and he misappropriated it. We know this because of the word itself. And the word is also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament on the story of Achan, that Achan misappropriated the stuff that was supposed to be given to God. So at some level, Ananias had made known that he was going to make an offering, maybe just like Barnabas, that he was going to sell this and it was all going to go to the church. Now, he didn't have to sell it. He didn't have to give it all to the church, but he must have said he was going to. And that, that's what makes this story so difficult and so heinous insofar as what is done by Ananias and his wife. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. John Stott said, We have to assume, therefore, that before the sale... Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some kind of contract to give the church the total amount raised. Because of this, when they brought only some instead of all, they were guilty of embezzlement. Um, I remember back at a church I went to in St. Louis, great church, but they did one of these capital campaigns, which we've done here, um, but the way that the capital campaign um, counselors or the, the consultants will tell you to do it, it varies. But they'll push as far as you want to push. Now, in our church, we never got comfortable with the way they wanted to do it because a lot of campaigns, they'll actually have you identify people. Um, and we don't know that. As a, as a rule, the, the leaders of the church don't know who gives what. Uh, but in this model, you're supposed to know, and then you're supposed to go after those who give the most. And we just were uncomfortable with that from the beginning. And so we did a kind of a more general one. Those who are here remember that. But this church I went to in St. Louis, it was a small church. It was just, uh, it was a great church. They just, you know, they're kind of listening to everything the consultant said. In the most uncomfortable moment for me being a future pastor at that time as I was sitting in a, um, a dinner we had to launch this capital campaign. It was a pretty modest campaign to basically extend the sanctuary, which was pretty small, and put a little uh, a better narthex for people to have some fellowship. Um, but I remember the pastor got up, and it was his job to be the first one to make the pledge. And he had to get up in front of everybody and tell them, and, I, and my wife and I, we're going to give, and he had to say the exact dollar amount um, in front of the church. It was supposed to meant to compel them. Now, that would... That, I just remember thinking back, wow, I hope so they don't ever make me do that kind of thing when I'm a pastor someday. Then I thought to myself, related to this story, this is how it would sort of be. Ananias sees what happens with Barnabas. He sees some of the accolade that Barnabas gets. Hey, Sapphira, we got some land, we can give it. He wants to give some of it. Um, let's go tell him we're going to do the same thing. And maybe at the moment he's thinking that. And he makes this pledge somewhere, somehow, publicly, that he's going to do the same thing Barnabas did. But somewhere along the line, as he's getting the money and realizing, he's thinking to himself, there's still a lot of money if I give it. So what if I keep some of it for ourselves? Something happened in there, and the thing he pledged publicly did not become the thing he gave. Yet he still wanted the accolade or the, you know, whatever it is that he thought he was going to get. We don't assume Barnabas did it for that reason, but he's thinking that most likely. We see by what Peter says that this is probably the case. That helps us understand. He's trying to 
demonstrates something in his outward action to gain the approval or appreciation of people rather than do it for God by sacrifice. And it's evidenced by the way he keeps back for himself some of which, some of what was pledged. John Stott says it so wonderfully. They were not so much misers as thieves, and above all, they were liars. I'm glad Scripture has the story of Ananias and Sapphira and not Tony. Just Tony. I would never lump anyone else with me in that. For the elevation of reputation, they told a lie. Verse 3, Peter, with the power of the Holy Spirit, no doubt. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias said, boy, that is not what Barnabas got. He didn't get, what, what, are you, what are you talking? While it remained unsold, Peter goes on. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Here, here's an important lesson. God does not need the stuff that we have. It's his stuff. We could be robbing him from it, but that's on us. He doesn't need it to do his will. And Peter's saying, you know, you could have kept your land and kept out of it. There was no reason for you to do this. I mean, evidence is what, what was in the heart of Ananias. While it remained unsold, Peter says, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. God knows. He knows why you did it. You didn't have to make this commitment, but you did it so that people would see it and they would elevate you. Uh, James Boyce says, the problem was not that Ananias did not give everything he had, but that he pretended to be giving it when actually he was holding back some. The problem was his hypocrisy and lying, not the fact that he owned property. He was part of the church. And falsehood destroys its fellowship. Kent Hughes It was not a casual deception. Rather, he feigned a deeper spiritual commitment than he had. And really, this is the the, the warning to all of us, especially if I was preaching to to people who were in ministry, especially us. Um, We have to beware of playing up our spiritual accomplishments like we're something. Like anything that that happens, and you could think of this as a ministry as a parent to your children or a pastor to a church, Anything good that happens under our ministry is not because of us. Even my saying this could be fueled by pride to make you think, oh, isn't he humble? It's a trap that's very challenging, and only God can help us with this. We have to beware of playing up spiritual accomplishments because no spiritual accomplishment is actually our accomplishment, not in reality. And the devil loves to disrupt Christian fellowship with this kind of thing. In fact, Peter, of all people who's given the speech to Ananias, who knows better than how Satan likes to sift us? I mean, who knows better than Peter? Peter later in his epistle, his first epistle, says this about Satan. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, anyone for that matter, to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil will be doing this. Peter knows this. He says this to Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Do you notice how, by the way, as a doctrinal note that's important, Peter is equating the Holy Spirit with God all the way through here. You lied to God, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, skip, up to verse, skip down to verse 5. This, this is a, what a drama, I mean, the tension of this scene. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, this is probably indicative of this happening on a Friday night. This is before Sabbath. This is why they're burying him so quickly. And also, they know that Sapphira is mixed in. There's actually grace laid in this. It doesn't say they weren't believers. And it doesn't say God cast them into eternal darkness or torment. They just, at this early stage of the life of the church, and Luke shows himself to be a true historian, he doesn't hide this story from us. This is what happened. And this is extreme because this is the headwaters of the Christian church, and this unity is so important. At least we can gain from it today that unity is important. Then the story gets thicker. After an interval of about three hours, you wonder what the people who were probably just finishing, they were just finishing burying the guy. It takes a long time to dig a hole, even in Palestine where they weren't as deep. And you have people sitting around who have just seen this thing happen, and they know Sapphira is coming, whom they love. She's part of the fellowship. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. Maybe she's out spending the other part of the money. Who knows? No Amazon in those days. Now, wait a minute. I sensed something there. I'm not, it could have been the other way around. It could have been the guy. Just to be clear, no emails on that. Maybe, though, it could be this. She returns expecting a bit of a hero's welcome. Remember Barnabas? You know, maybe there's, there's some expectation. Hey, when I get back, they're all going to be celebrating more money coming into the church to help with the needs and so forth. Instead, it's just all different than that. Verse 8, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. It's not to say that God did not forgive her for her sins. She confessed them. We're at a unique period in the life of the church, and there's something that happens here that is unprecedented, and it happens. In verse 10, immediately she fell down at at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11 captures, uh, uses a word for the first time in the book of Acts that is forever after this very important to all of us. See if you can guess what it is. And great fear came upon them, up, upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Several important words, but the word church. The first time it's used in the book of Acts. It literally is ekklesia, ek out of, kale, kaleo, or klesia, called out, called out once. The church are a collection of those called out from the world, redeemed by God through Christ, were the called out ones. It also becomes synonymous with assembly, but it literally means called out ones. Then the church is known as the assembly. The assembly of who? The redeemed. The whole church, the called out ones, they recognize what they've seen, the extreme nature of it, but they also get the importance of the unity of the church, especially in this early time in the church's life. Uh, Calvin, who writes wonderfully on this gospel, he uh, writes wonderfully on most things he writes on, but this, this is such a, a, a wonderful analysis he makes. Listen to what he says about this sin of Ananias and Sapphira and how it relates. Luke condemns no other fault in Ananias than this, that he meant to deceive God and the church with a feigned offering. Yet there were more evils packed in under this dissimulation, and he unravels them now all the levels of it. And isn't this true of our sin? It's always way more complex than just I told a lie. 
There was like seven other sins I had buried in that. That was some kind of self-promotion protection built into my lie. I mean, our lives are not that simple. In one sense they are, but then they're complex too. And Calvin captures it. He said, also, there was the contempt of God, whom he feared not, knowing that God knew his wickedness. Still didn't fear it. There was sacrilegious defrauding, because he kept back part of that which he professed to be holy to God, or an offering to God. Uh, It was perverse. Perverse vanity and ambition, because he vaunted himself in the presence of men without having any respect into God's judgment. As long as people think I'm, I'm great, God knows. Want of faith or lack of faith, because he would never... Uh, because he would never have gone this way unless he mistrusted God. He wouldn't have kept back any of it. If he knows it's all God's, he would trust you to have faith. You know, when we give, it's a statement of, we just believe that God gave us what we have. We can give it to him. He can give us more if he wants. If he doesn't, it's his will. That's what giving is, really. Honestly, well, you, the tithe is a beautiful thing because it's really a small amount compared to all the other things we buy and pay for. But by doing it, it's a statement of, you gave it, and so I'm giving back a portion that you designate, and I believe that you'll provide for me whatever I need. It's a statement, it's a profession of faith, but he shows something different. The corrupting of a godly and holy order, the local church. He brings corruption into this place that needs strength. Furthermore, the hypocrisy itself is a great offense in and of itself. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. I'm accenting this aspect of truth because of Ananias and Sapphira, but there's so many other things that can impact or impact or hurt our unity. God's purposes were fulfilled through this story. The glory of God was kept intact. The founding of his church continued. Purity was maintained. Unity continued through this deterrent that they saw. And God's church continued to expand. You know, this text, among other things, is really a call for us to reconsider the unity of the church, um, how important it is to God, what Jesus prayed in John 17, how is it fulfilled in the life of our fellowship. And I was thinking of our mission. Steve mentioned it in, our, in the prayer, and it's on your bulletin every week. The mission of Redeemer, just the first point, is to mature as a community of Christians. I think we have to work really hard at community in this day and age and in the suburbs because we don't all walk to church. Um, we drive here from someplace, and it really can become isolated to just the events we do at the church building, which can be very few. And they're glorious times. We love worshiping God together and seeing each other week to week. But you know and I know that community requires more than just a weekly gathering. There really needs to be more so we can share life and what's happening. I think actually things like social media, texting, those are good things to keep us up to date, but they don't get as deeper with each other. So I would say one encouragement that comes from this text for us to think in terms of is what mechanism do we have to grow in unity with our fellow believers? You can't be friends with everybody. We're not a huge church, but big enough to where you're not going to know everybody. Um, One mechanism I would encourage you to really consider if you've not committed to it. While you're committing to stuff for the fall, and we have all the stuff for our kids, all the stuff that we do for hobbies, all the stuff we do in our community, our jobs, with all the things. Now when you're settling it in, settle in to go to your home fellowship group home fellowship group. And if you're in a new one, it'll take you a year before you start connecting. It's just going to be the case. Don't give up. I mean, you wouldn't give up on other things that quickly. Don't give up on that. It's only twice a month. Get yourself there. And if everybody goes to it and it's all crowded, we'll figure it out. We'll help you out. We'll, we'll get on it and we'll make sure the groups are sizes that are manageable so that we can grow in fellowship. 
I think that the effectiveness of Redeemer will be directly related to our unity together doctrinally and communally. And the, where, the place that we manifest that or grow that is going to be in smaller groups with each other. So we can grow deeper with each other there and then come to this common place, hear the word preach, go to Sunday school, go to Sunday night, places where we learn the word, get unified doctrinally, connect with each other, then have smaller groups to go deeper. I think that evangelism will be benefited if we commit to this. Because the world will see, and you will be a different person when you relate with people who don't know Christ in how you refer to your church family, how you invite them into the church family, how you talk about what unites us, Christ. It just gives so many natural ways to share the gospel that are, are just, they're just free-flowing as opposed to, hey, stranger, I'd like to share with you about Christ. Do that if God gives you the opportunity, but I'll bet if we work on our unity, we'll see that happen more in our membership in extended ways. May verse 32 and verse 33 be characteristic of us. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be vigorous and active in our lives so that we might share in true fellowship with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Please grant that we would be zealous for unity in this church, that we would go after it, that we would strive for it, so that we might be witnesses to the world for Jesus. May the world look upon this fellowship called Redeemer in other churches in Kansas City around us, our neighboring churches. May the world look at these churches and say, hey, what makes them love each other like that? May they see the truth of Christ's salvation manifested in the unity that you grant your church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to a wonderful hymn that the last verse will become our closing verse for a while, but in preparation for the Lord's Supper, this works wonderfully as well. 469, let's stand and sing the first three verses of how sweet and awesome is the place. <laughs>